Mark chapter 9, I'll turn you back to that passage that we read just earlier on. The title of the message, Faith and Unbelief. Faith and Unbelief. Let's just unite our heart together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do praise thee again for thy presence, thy mercies, that even finds us in the house of God tonight. We thank you, Lord, we have thy word before us. And, O God, faith cometh by hearing hearing by the word of God. We pray that thou would give the gift of faith tonight to those yet unbelieving. And I might see it unto the uttermost. Let us in with thyself. Help us, Lord, as we come to this passage. Give us understanding. And we pray that thou might have thine own way. And thou would fill us with thy spirit and with power. We might preach as thus and thus saith the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter could speak of being an eyewitness of Christ's majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came a voice to him from heaven, from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That account of Peter is found in the first chapter of his second epistle. It refers to the passage just prior to where we are tonight. As I've said to you already in the reading, that was the occasion that has become known as the Saviour's transfiguration on the mount. And what a blessing that must have been for those three disciples who were with the Lord. They got a little preview of what heaven will be like. They saw Christ in his excellent glory. And they saw a representation of the Old Testament saints in the form of Moses and Elijah. And they were there themselves. You see, men and women, there be one church. And those saved in the Old Testament are saved exactly as those in the New Testament time. It's by faith in Christ. But it wasn't lasting. And the Lord, after communing with Moses and Elijah, didn't tarry long in his glorified appearance. For he soon is found to be returning to his work of doing good among a sick and a sin-stricken world. And going about healing all that were oppressed of the devil. His great work of redemption had to be completed. And nothing would take him away from that. Despite the request of Peter that they might stay there. What a contrast from a display of Christ's glory on the mount to the disorder that there is in the world at the foot of the mountain. What meets Christ and his disciples at the foot of this mountain is another great crowd. Even though he had been absent for a time, yet much people were to meet with him. You see, the prophecy of the old time had been, unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And when they saw the Lord, they were amazed. And they came running to him. But we quickly realize that the attention is drawn in particular to one man. And what every parent desires, that their son or daughter might be delivered by the Lord of glory. I want us to 
Just take a look at this scene. He wants to realize that with the Father there's a battle between faith and unbelief. And what led him to say the words that he does in verse 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thy mine unbelief. There's faith and unbelief. You will consider with me, first of all, about this father's son, his condition. What should a parent do when troubled by their offspring? Well, you have a good answer to that and what the father did for this boy. Verse 17, one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. It tells us that he brought him unto Jesus. He was distressed for his only son. His condition was one of being possessed of an evil spirit. That evil spirit was found to torment him in body and in soul. And a little of a sense of how it affected him can be noted from what the father says. Even if you read the words of verse 18. And whithersoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. The evil spirit, we could say, was in control of this unnamed son. And what a frightful power is in evidence who, without any warning, that evil spirit would suddenly seize upon this young man. He would throw him into convulsions. This is not the only occasion, of course, that we come across those who were possessed of the devil throughout the earthly ministry of the Savior. It seemed to be prevalent in those days. We read of another time where many were brought unto him that were possessed. We read of that time where legion and of the demoniac. And now at the foot of this mountain where Christ's glory was seen. The Lord is faced with another sad case of a young man being possessed of the devil. And men and women I want to say this. Although we do not hear of this so much in these days. Let me underline to you. That a believer can never be possessed of the devil. And I underline that to you. Because here is an erroneous teaching that permeates many circles today. But which has no biblical foundation. A believer at the point of their conversion. Christ comes in. The devil goes out of the heart. Christ is in control. That doesn't say we we suddenly become sinless. We're not saying that. But a child of God cannot be possessed of the devil. Yet the soul that is born in sin, the soul that is born in iniquity and shape in iniquity, that soul that seeks to satisfy the void in their heart and in their life by the pleasures of this world, as it led it will, is also one who's under the same control of the devil. For it is the prince of the power of the air that we read that worketh in the children of disobedience. It's the spirit of the devil that causes sinners to fulfill the lusts of the flesh and of the mind and are by nature the children of wrath even as others. Ephesians chapter 2. The Lord doesn't lead your children into sin. The Lord doesn't lead your loved ones into sin. It's their sinful nature. It's the devil that does that. We are sinners by birth and by nature and by practice. That's why we sin. And hence the condition of this young man ought to bring home to us the influence that the ungodly are under 
I want you to note the pain here that's associated with this condition. For the Father explains that when the Spirit taketh him, he teareth him. He was a parent who saw with his own eyes what the evil spirit could do to his son. He would tear at him and bruise him. It would cause him to foam again and again and again and gnash with his teeth. If you have problem, any of you have ever had problem with teeth, you will know that that's a painful experience. And there's a gnashing. It is, of course, what the Savior used also to describe the eternal torments and the lost sinner's eternity. And here's a young man, and he's possessed by the devil. He said in verse 21 that this had been a state even since he was a child. I want to tell you, parents, the devil begins his work early. Oh, the afflictions and pain that this young man had to bear. And learn it well what hurt and pain the devil causes when he gets possession. There is only pleasure in sin for a season. And then comes the pain. Then comes the hurt. Then comes the physical and the mental scars. Maybe we'll do well just to turn back to Proverbs for a moment. Chapter 23. And to show you it for yourself in black and white as it were. Here's what sin does. Proverbs 23 verse 29. And the preacher asked the question, who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath the redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine, it shows in their face, you see. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. We're talking about strong drink here. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, thine heart shall utter perverse things. It can be seen in the behavior. It can be noted in the face. It can be seen in the eyes, the man or the woman that has been at the drink. And there's the pain. And there's the affliction to follow. Is that not the language of pain and affliction and woe? The approach of this father to the Lord in these words is really what amounts to his praying. Like others before him, like others who were troubled with this very same condition, he was to seek the Lord. And look in his account, he describes the manner in which he sought the Savior. We read this, that a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son. And when we read that he cried out, the word that is used there implies a crying out with a loud voice. In fact, it is the very same word that is used of the Savior when he hung on that middle cross. It says that he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's a cry of agony. And the same was heard, of course, also around the cross when the crowds cried out for Pilate to do what he always had done and that was to release unto them one prisoner and they wanted Barabbas released and they wanted Christ to be crucified. There's the cry for action. 
And this father cries unto Christ that he would help his son, for he, like Jairus's, like Jairus and like that widow at Nain that we looked at one other night, in that this was his only child. To whom else could he go but to Christ? To whom else can he make his appeal but unto the Lord? Look at the end of verse 22. It says, And oftentimes it cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. That's what the devil is about. He is one who has come to steal and to destroy. But if he says, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Help us. Can we not say it that there are countless numbers of parents who are just in the same agony? And maybe it's not for a child, maybe it's for a brother, maybe it's for a loved one, maybe it's for your life's partner. You're in the same agony concerning that loved one tonight. That son maybe who promised so much and they had, you had the best of intentions for and yet they've turned out to be a companion of sinners. One whose heart is hardened to the gospel. Maybe it's a daughter, that one who sang so sweetly the songs of Zion, whom you expected so much from, has turned out to be a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. The devil has appeared to triumph over them. It has caused untold pain to your heart and to many others. What can a parent do in a case such as that? You can only do what this man did, and that is go to the Lord in prayer. For he alone has the words of deliverance for a guilty hell-bound soul. Bring him to the Lord. Spread that need before him, pleading that he might be merciful unto him. For you know, men and women, great is the power of prayer, power of believing prayer, that is. Their condition warrants you, and it warrants us to pray for loved ones that they might be delivered. But you know, having looked at the condition, you'll notice his coming. For when we think of the Savior, I believe we see again here his readiness to receive sinners unto himself. And his interest in this case is in particular for this young man. He invited him to be brought unto him. Look at the words at the end of verse 19 that we read in our chapter. It says, how long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Well, we consider his coming then, surely there's hope. This young man, as bad as he was, as possessed of the devil as he was and all that went with it in terms of his afflictions, in terms of his sufferings and oppression, yet he's coming to Christ. Prayer had been offered for him by his father. The Lord is near. His son is coming to the Lord. He's coming to the one who delivered others in the past. He's coming to the Christ who had raised the dead, who had healed the lepers. And surely there's hope for this young man as well. And dear loved ones, so it is to this night. There's hope for the son or the daughter, the husband or the wife, the loved one who are wayward. There's hope for the deep-dyed sinner, for none are too hard for the Lord. There's hope not only in account of what Christ has done in the past, but in account of what the Scriptures teach. Remember John 6 and verse 37. It simply says this, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. 
It's the very same invitation that the Lord himself gives. In Matthew chapter 11, he said, come unto me. All yet labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's hope for you, dear soul, tonight, if you will heed Christ's invitation, if you will come to him seeking his mercy and his healing power. There's hope for not only time, but for all eternity. For you'll have the blessed assurance that one day you'll be with Christ, which is far better. What a, a blessed hope that is. But you know, you'll see also here his coming was hindered. You'll notice the end of verse 20. <clears throat> and they brought him unto him, and when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. The devil never likes to give up a prey without a struggle. And it was while this young man was coming, the devil was about the work of preventing the sinner ever getting to the Savior. That's a work that he's still engaged in. It might be asked, how does the devil do that? Well, we know, of course, that Paul writes it to the church at Corinth, for it is the God of this world who hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. Lest the glorious light of the gospel, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You remember Abner, if he can give you an example. Abner was near that city of refuge. That city that he was saved from the avenger's sword. Yet we read that he was taken aside in the gate by Joab. And he plunged that sword into him and he was slain. Or you might think of Agrippa tonight. King Agrippa who said to Paul after hearing the prisoner preach. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Each of these are examples of those who were hindered. And the devil is yet about that work in the hearts of those whom are held, he has held captive for many a year. And what he does to men, you know, he sought to do against the very Christ of God. He sought to hinder him going to the cross. He sought that there would be a disturbance in the garden of Gethsemane where Peter drew his sword and he cut the ear off Malchus. And he sought to prevent them going through with the work of the cross and the work of redemption. For the taunts of the crowd that day where he saved others himself, he cannot see you. Come down from the cross and we will believe you. The devil didn't want him to finish the work. I wonder what sort of hindrance has the devil used against you coming to Christ. It might have been the sins of the past. Has he raised those up? It might have been the company. And you know the sort of crowd that you mingle with and you revel in. And how are you going to tell those boys that you've come to Christ? It might be that's the hindrance. It might have been the doubts have come in as never before. Doubts over whether God would ever save a sinner like you. Doubts over whether you'd be able to walk with God. Is those the hindrances? It might have been simply the hindrance of procrastination. Neglecting to do that which you know you need to do. Like the man who neglected the wedding garment. At the wedding of the king's son. Beware sinner tonight of the hindrances. That will cast you down and tear you apart. Before you ever get to Christ. Yes you see there were the hindrances here in his coming. And you'll also notice that his coming was halted because that same verse tells us he fell on the ground and he wallowed foaming. 
he was halted in going any further. In fact, if I can give you that example of how Luke brings it out, Luke chapter 9 verse 42 says, And as he was yet a-coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. As he was yet a-coming. My friend, therein lies an important truth. To be coming to Christ is not enough. You must actually by faith come to him and receive him. It's not enough for a sick man to come to the doctor. This sick man must take the medicine if he is ever going to be restored. For a hungry soul to be fed, it's not enough to be coming to the table full of good things. That soul must sit down. That soul must partake of that table and eat. And I plead with you, dear sinner, while God's Spirit is striving with you and has showed you your condition, then don't be halted in getting to Christ. Don't be halted. The devil will have the hindrances well placed. But don't be stopped until you get to that place of confession, that place of repentance of your sin, and that place of turning by faith to accept Christ as your own and personal Savior. You see, so near, so near is yet so far. So near heaven is not in heaven. Almost persuaded is to be lost. I wonder, will you come and be saved now? It's coming. But you know, there's also his charge here, or his change here, I should say. The devil may have had one last strike at this young man as he was coming to Christ. He may have sought to hinder him and stop him. But you see, our text shows that the attempts of the devil were futile. Satan to Jesus must bow. For what we have is the power of Christ in evidence here. And the Savior can do what no other can do. And even the disciples in this case. For you'll see that this father had brought his son who was deaf and dumb to them. But they were unable to do anything for him. And I think we get a, a clue. I think we get the reason why that was the case, you know. If you just read with me again the words of verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. Verse 16. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? There's the reason why, or at least part of it. The impression gives that there's lots of arguing. There's lots of debating here, but there's little action. The scribes had got in on it. Those religious guys. What a drastic change for the Savior on the mount he was, as it were, near to the very gate of heaven, or at least the disciples seemed to be. But on the foot of the mount, he's now at the very gate of hell. But there's a connection too. For you remember while he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, what did he speak about to Moses and Elijah? It tells us that he spoke of his decease. And the word is his death. He spoke of the work of redemption. Men and women, as I said, that's why Peter's suggestion of building three booths for them and to stay there wasn't accepted because nothing would stop Christ fulfilling the work of redemption. And this boy would now become an object lesson of that very work for which the Savior came to do. 
The Lord by his power would show what redeeming, miserable captives of Satan just looks like. For he was going to be delivered. And the Lord had to but speak the word and the evil spirit, we read in verse 25, was rebuked. When Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. There's the authority of Christ over the devil. The word rebuked there is also translated charged. The authority of Christ and his power is obvious. His might and power is greater than that of Satan. It's greater than any created being. It's greater than his creation. This is the same Christ who rebuked the wind and the region of the waves of the sea. And there was a great calm. He rebuked fevers and they left the afflicted. He rebuked devils and they suffered them not to speak. Dear soul, the Christ who has displayed such power and authority to rebuke the evil spirit is able to speak the word to your soul. He's able to set the prisoner free. There's no sinner too hard for the Lord. You too can be cured tonight from your disease called sin. But notice this. That before he performed that miracle, He first addressed the issues of the heart. Don't know why you ever saw that or not. He taught about faith. And he encouraged its growth and development. Look at the verse 19. He answered him and saith, that's the father, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And there's a rebuke. And that rebuke is not, I believe, only aimed at the Father. That rebuke is aimed at the multitude. And the disciples there too. His target was unbelief in the heart. Like a surgeon, the surgeon uses the knife to get to the root of the problem. And the Savior uses the knife of rebuke to get to the problem of unbelief. And then he nurtures the faith of the Father. Look at the words at the end of verse 22. The Father says, But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. His first word is if. If thou canst do anything. It betrays the weakness of his faith. The doubt was in the heart. If the Lord could change what had been done and was happening in his child, from even he was, he was a young person, just a little child. And you'll notice the Savior takes direct aim at that if. For look at verse 23. He said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. The Greek original literally has it like this. Regarding the if. If you believe. You see the man had put the if in the wrong place. You see it? He had put the if in the wrong place. The question was not whether Christ could do it or not. It was whether the man believed that Christ could do it or not. 
And this is not something about positive thinking or, or, or supporting the belief of faith, miracles, all that rubbish that you come across today. It's nothing to do with that. Here the Lord is speaking about genuine faith. For when miracles don't happen and miracles are delayed, true faith continues. True faith doesn't stop. The Lord was teaching about faith. He calls forth faith. He works through faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. He gives faith an empty hand to receive all things from him. And through faith Christ reveals his glory. And in response to the Savior's teaching. This father evidences true faith in its weakness. But also in its strength and in its ability. He cried out, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. There's faith and unbelief. Under the gaze of Christ, he admitted both. He spoke first from the perspective of faith. He says, I believe. And then he begged for Christ's assistance. He needed help. Not because of the devil who was possessing his son. But because of a greater foe. The unbelief in his heart. C.H. Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher of London of bygone age, he said this. He says, while men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, then they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. And this man, I believe, was already saved. He was already knew the Lord, but his faith was weak. And he became so conscious of his unbelief. He said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And men and women, that greater battle was won. And the lesser battle about a son, it was also be to be resolved quickly in the words of verse 25. Because it says, when Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. You see the perfection of this cure. The boy had been troubled. The boy who had been afflicted by the evil spirit. He was delivered. Oh, the people thought he was dead. But the Lord took him by the hand and raised him up. He was healed. But when the Lord does a work, then it is perfect. And my friend, that is what the Lord does also in salvation. The work is immediate. He just spoke the word here and that son was delivered. The authority of Christ was to charge the evil spirit to come out of him and to go no more into him. The work was immediate. There's a new creation. And with that comes new desires and new loves. That's what the Lord does in salvation. Those things that we once loved, we now hate. And those things that we hate, we now love. It's only the Lord can do that work. Church can't do that work. A preacher can't do that work. It's only the Lord Jesus who can do such a work in the heart and the life of a depraved son of Adam's race. And it is Christ alone who can save you. It's Christ alone who can make you whole. It is that same Christ that we have left before you tonight as the only hope for your sinful lost soul. What the people saw this day is what the Lord does in salvation. And he can do so because you see following this he was to go to the cross. And at Calvary he was to offer that once for all 
perfect sacrifice as a sinner's substitute. And on that cross, he bruised Satan's head. That promise that was spoken away back in the Garden of Eden was fulfilled at Calvary. He bruised Satan's head. And when all was accomplished, he cried, finished. But I wonder, will you seek his transforming power tonight in salvation? I wonder, child, or young person, or older man or woman, I wonder, will you seek him while he may be found? The father brought the son unto him because the Lord was near. And that father's prayer was answered. His son was delivered. And the disciples were taught. This cometh. But by prayer and fasting. They had been given the power to deliver from the evil spirit. Mark chapter 3. You can check it when you go home. But they needed faith. They needed the power of Christ. They needed to seek the Lord. Sinner, will you seek the Lord tonight? Will you come and seek him? Because it's only the Lord that can save you and heal you. May the Lord be pleased to bless his word tonight and to give you the gift of faith. 247 will sing in closing. 247 is the grandest theme through the ages wronged, is the grandest theme for a mortal tongue, is the grandest theme that the world there sung. Our God is able to deliver thee. 247, page 276, let's stand as we sing it, please.
Sunday for thy word. We thank the Lord that faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Men and women have heard the preaching of the word tonight. Lord, will thou in the closing seconds of this meeting cause them to, by faith to look to God. He will make them whole. For our God is able to deliver tonight. We praise the Lord for this illustrated in this passage. We pray, Lord, that I would deliver a man tonight, a woman that's been long prayed for, a loved one in the family, held by many a snare of the devil. Lord, will thou set them free? O God, speak on when the preacher's voice is silent. Have mercy on souls tonight. Bring them to Christ. And have all the praise, the honour and the glory. Part us now of thy blessing and thy fear. Give journey of mercies home. And Lord, we pray that thou would be go before us even every step of the way this week. For we ask these mercies in our Saviour's precious and worthy name. 